from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. What has happened to America that we can't unite like we did back when Jerry Lewis had his telethons and the March of Dimes for polio and that? I think it's a combination of the entire scientific community, um, and, and it goes far beyond um, the community that's based in the United States. And to believe this conspiracy theory, we'd have to believe that people like you are lying to us. I'm Sarah Fenske. For 18 months now, Pfizer's site in Chesterfield has been consumed with COVID-19 vaccines. They help to develop it, they manufacture a key component, and they test each and every vaccine before it's shipped off for use. That makes the workers at the suburban St. Louis site an integral part of every one of the 3 billion vaccines Pfizer is on pace to produce this year. It's an all-hands-on-deck marathon that began in March of 2020. And joining us today to share how that work began and how it's going today is Justin Sperry. He's the head of research and development at Pfizer's Chesterfield site and also vice president of technology and innovation for biotherapeutics and vaccines. Justin will also be the keynote speaker at the annual Hancock Symposium at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. His presentation is titled Past, Present, and Future Insights into the COVID-19 Vaccine. And he joins us today to tell us more about it. So Justin, welcome. Yes, thank you. Delighted to be here. So I have to ask, just how much has the work on this vaccine changed your life? Oh, my goodness. That is a fully loaded question. Um, I would say, you know, every person in our site, including myself, has experienced many emotions over the last 16 months. Um, everything from joy to being stressed out um, to feeling a lot of pressure. And I, I think what ultimately has happened is that we we feel really proud about the science that was done and the work that was done and our ability to contribute to potentially ending this pandemic. Yeah. So take us back to how all this began for you. When did you realize, hey, I'm actually going to have a pretty big role to play here? Yeah, I remember seeing the news in early January, um, news coming out of Asia that, you know, a respiratory virus was present. And um actually attending a conference with other pharmaceutical companies, and we were talking about science at the end of January, wondering if this virus was going to come to the United States. And it wasn't even within the week that uh, we had our first cases in, in Washington and, and Boston. And within a very short period of time, we knew a lot about the virus. That's mm -hmm. just one of the benefits of the science and technology that we're doing now today. But in March, we learned uh, that we were going to partner with BioNTech, which is a company that we've partnered for three years prior to that because we were interested in developing a flu vaccine with them. Um, but that quickly pivoted the entire team uh, to working on the COVID vaccine. And it was quite amazing. I mean, everybody was constantly asking, are we going to get a chance to work on it? And when we did have that final message to colleagues, we, we had a lot of hands raised in the, in the site saying, we absolutely want to contribute to this. And you talk about having to pivot. Um, was there other work that I'm sure felt very important prior to this that you just had to put that aside? 
Well, that was one of the most interesting things about this. So we, we really focused the site. We had three really key initiatives first. Number one was to make our colleagues safe. Um, with the pandemic going on, we had to assure that our colleagues remain and their families remain safe. And so we had to change all of our operating procedures and figure out social distancing and masking and seating differently on site. The second thing was that, you know, obviously our site's highly involved in manufacturing medicines and other disease did not stop during this time. Right. right? I mean, people were still needing their cancer medicines, their inflammation medicines, medicines for rare disease. And so we had to really prioritize every single one of those. We, we couldn't put them aside because people were relying on those things. And then on top of that, we had to contribute to this pandemic, right? We, we had to figure out and literally reprioritize every activity that we were doing so that we can not only deliver what was on our plate before, because we weren't really sitting around with not much to do, right? Um, but we had to fit this gigantic project into, into our, our team all while operating differently. So it was quite a task, but I think when colleagues felt the purpose and the mission behind it, everybody was willing to be flexible and, and work on it. Wow, that's great. So you guys have about 500 people there in Chesterfield. Mm -hmm. How many of them were, were all hands on deck for this particular COVID-19 part of things? Um, various amounts during the time. So I would say, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if over half the site was uh, involved mm -hmm. in, in some particular way. Um, we, we have really three main focus areas on the site. And um, many of the colleagues that weren't working on it were taking work off of the colleagues that were working on it. So and, they're indirectly, and it's so changed it, them too. Literally every single person contributed to the progress of not only this vaccine, but our other products as well. Hmm. So I think of that incredible fear that mm -hmm. was in this country in those days in March when you got this assignment and we're thinking about this could be mass casualties. Mm -hmm. How do you balance the need to sort of like be in a race and put everything into this at the same time that you had to know it wasn't a sprint? You weren't going to solve this overnight. How do you pace yourself with for something like that? Yeah, you know, so in, in normal drug development, we kind of start small, right? And um, as we learn more, um, both clinically and about the manufacturing process, we we gradually grow teams. And in this particular instance, it it, it was kind of a, a sprint, but mm. we we had instead of starting out with a small team, we started out with very significant resources very significant amount number of people. Um, and it wasn't just the St. Louis site. There were many sites across our network that were really gearing up and ramping up uh, so that we could capitalize on the strength of each of the individual sites um, so that we could do this uh, very quickly, but also with really high quality uh, and integrity um, and and really focusing on the quality of the of the final product. So was this a matter of inches? Just each day things move forward a little bit, or were there also days where it's like, hey, whoa, we just had a breakthrough? Yep. No, it started very. It, it seemed like hourly that we were getting <laughs> updates um, because there was so much parallel activity going on and. I, as we were discussing just before this, we we were commonly having meetings very early in the morning with our European colleagues because they were doing things that were feeding information to us. And, and, and don't <laughs> undersell this part about very early in the morning. People might be thinking you mean 6 a.m. How yeah. early in the morning? Uh, there were a few 4 a.m. meetings. Oh. You know, that, that was around lunchtime in, in Europe. So, um, you know, it, it was one of those things that we had to do. Um, there, there was... Uh, information constantly being generated there. 
Um, that would feed our activities here in the U.S. Um, and then we, we would feed information back to them so they would be prepared for the, for the next day. And oftentimes they were staying up very late too to, to get this information. So it was really quite an undertaking, um, but there was so much discretionary energy involved with, with the colleagues. We, we really were um, empowered to make decisions very quickly. We kind of erased our, our titles and our group names, and, mm-hmm. and we really kind of truly came together as a team. So these 4 a.m. meetings, this <laughs> isn't just a meeting that somebody felt the team had to get together. It sounds like there was an excitement, the buzzing of ideas and, and discoveries being exchanged. No, absolutely, um, because we, we weren't going through this kind of gradual process of, of increasing the scale of production. We were going right to the proposed commercial scale manufacturing. We, we had to get to a point where we were very comfortable with what was going to truly produce enough doses to make a difference. And so this is very significant from an investment point of view. Um, And if mistakes are made, that also causes significant cost. And so um, we really wanted to focus on driving the science. You know, science is very data driven. We were literally, the the book of this vaccine was literally changing every day. The data was changing every day. And that's what was driving our our forward progression. So there's been a lot of talk about mRNA. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it might be helpful when we try to understand exactly what's happening today in Chesterfield. And also, you know, this this historic process to hear from you what exactly how this mrna works i know you're going to break this down in a way that's going to make sense to people who don't know anything sure well um interestingly enough um mrna we're we're celebrating its 60th birthday this Hmm. year so it was discovered and first published back in 1961 so so this is an old discovery yeah and um as part of this vaccine we're also protecting the mrna it's a very sensitive thing on our on our skin and on the surfaces around this office we there are proteins and enzymes and things that are present that will make it unstable so mrna you can think of it as um it let's start with dna you know dna is a very easy place to start you can think of that as your cookbook right? And um, if you're going to give your secret recipe out to your friends, you're not going to rip the page out of your cookbook. You're going to copy it. You're going to put it on a, on, a cook, on a recipe card, at least in the olden days. Um, think of RNA as that recipe card. It's a set of instructions, basically. It translates the information that's permanently in our cells and our DNA, and it is the functional aspect. All of our cells in our body, all of the functions that our organs do really rely on RNA converting to proteins in our, in our cell. And so if you can imagine that now we've made RNA, this set of instructions to produce a portion of the virus. And I guess when you look at a picture of the coronavirus on the news, the first thing you see are these kind of spike proteins coming out of it, right? Yeah. Because your eyes see it, this is also going to be the first thing that your body sees, uh, your immune system. And so it was a very easy target to give your body a set of instructions to make this particular spike protein. Okay. And so this process, as you say, mRNA is very old. Yes. But what is new is the recipe card for this particular virus. That's exactly right. So um, very quickly and early on, even back in January of last year, the genetic sequence of the coronavirus was known. And so we could very easily find out what the sequence of this particular protein was. And so um, in today's world, uh, it's pretty uh, amazing what the technology allows us to do. Um, We we were investing in this technology uh, in terms of a vaccine approach because to make RNA, 
it's very quick. Mm -hmm. This technology is designed to go fast. We were interested in working with BioNTech on the flu vaccine because, as you know, sometimes when you get your flu shot, it's maybe not accurate by the time the flu comes out in the, in the fall, right? The strain might be different. And so we were developing the technology with them so that we could rapidly adapt to the most current, you know, flu strain. In this particular instance, we're adapting the technology to respond to a coronavirus. So. Okay, so that that recipe was cracked. Yes, <laughs> you guys it was, figured it out was how very to do cracked that. very early. Yeah. And so then from there, you figure out the vaccine. So how does that work today? I mean, in, in Chesterfield, you handle two different parts yep. of each vaccine. Mm -hmm. That starts with the manufacturing. So what are you yep. guys doing? So you can think of uh, vaccine production as having three major steps. The first part is to make what we call a template, and that's DNA, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and we, the Chesterfield site, uh, are, have world-renowned scientists that have been making these kind of DNA templates for years. It's the basis of all of the biotherapeutics that we, that we manufacture in our, in our portfolio. And so we were dedicated to making literally the world's supply of this DNA template. Um, and to date, we've generated enough template to make over 3 billion doses. <laughs> that's so, all happening in Chesterfield. <laughs> this is all happening in Chesterfield. Literally every dose of the vaccine that's been distributed around the world. Uh, we've distributed 1.3 billion doses to date. We're distributing to 120 different countries to date. Literally every single DNA template came from Chesterfield. That's huge. Yes. And then this ultimately gets tested and it gets sent to another facility actually outside of, of Boston, at least um, in the U.S., and then a portion of it gets sent to Europe. Um, and this is where the RNA is made. So this is the second major step of the process. Um, the third major step, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, is to protect the RNA. Um, this is a fancy term for it as a lipid nanoparticle, but basically think of it as a protective shell around the RNA. Um, this, for all of the U.S. supply, this was actually, this final step was done in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, and every batch, literally every batch that the Kalamazoo site did, and it was five to ten batches a week, vials from every single batch were sent back to Chesterfield and we tested it. So we test the process for the first step, we test all of the RNA, we test all the final product. Literally every single test has to pass in, in order for us to, this ensures that the product is consistently made, it's safe, it's going to be efficacious, it's similar to the material that's done in the clinical trial, and we can release it to the public at that point. So I can hear the pride in your voice as you're talking about this work. I mean, this just must feel so important, like you're working every day to make sure that the shots that, that are going into our arms are safe and yep. that they're going to save us. I mean, yep. that give you a great sense of satisfaction. Of course. You, you know, I'm also a husband, a father, a son, um, and these shots are not only going into us, they're going into, you know, my daughter, my wife, my mom, my grandma, my family, our friends, our neighbors. Um, it's critically important. It's I, I can't say it any more than that, but it, it's absolutely critically important that every single step, every single raw material, every single dial and knob in the process was well studied, well controlled, and completely validated for the emergency use authorization. And you guys did that right yep. there in Chesterfield. Yep. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Justin. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. Our guest today is Justin Sperry. He's the head of research and development at Pfizer's Chesterfield site. He's also the vice president of technology and innovation for biotherapeutics and vaccines. And we do want to mention he's also delivering a keynote speech tomorrow morning. This is part of the Hancock Symposium at Westminster College. We have details about that on our website if you want to join virtually or even get down to Fulton yourself. Uh, that's stlonair.show. So, Justin, as we were talking about before the break, you guys worked so hard to get this done as fast as you could. You're doing 4 a.m. meetings to bring this vaccine to America. And yet we're at this point where there are still 80 million Americans who are unvaccinated, despite no shortage of doses right now. How does that feel? Well, uh, ultimately, I, I feel like everybody needs to come and, and ask the right questions for themselves, right? I think we're encouraged so far. If you look at those that are eligible to get vaccinated, those that are 12 in order, we the U.S. is actually at 60% vaccinated. And that's a big improvement that's from a, where we were. That's a big improvement. And, and Missouri itself is also gradually increasing. We have, gradually. We, we, no, but seriously, we, we have 54% of the, of the state that has received their first dose which means that we hope that they also sign up for their second dose. Um, you know, I ultimately think that every single person is kind of evaluating their, their risk um, mm -hmm. to, to this disease. Some people have a very high risk. Some people have a very low risk. Um, but collectively, vaccines are a really key proactive tool to get ahead of this virus. Mm -hmm. And really the more people that we have vaccinated, we can collectively as a whole bring that risk down for everyone. So we're seeing positive trends. We, we hope that people continue to build their own confidence in the science. Um, the, the science is very, very sound. And it, there's a lot of trust. This is not a Missouri thing or a U.S. thing. This is a worldwide issue. Um, and, and we're going to continue to educate and be transparent about the process and the, and the vaccine. So there is some misinformation out there. And frankly, I hear a lot of it in Missouri. And to believe this conspiracy theory, we'd have to believe that people like you are lying to us or that you have no idea what you're doing. I mean, is that a little bit frustrating that y these are your friends and neighbors in some way? Did they want to believe you're in on this vast conspiracy to, to poison them? What, one of the things I enjoyed the most was getting questions. Um, I've heard from people that I haven't heard from since high school. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up in a very small farming community in Ohio. My mom was a nurse. Um, and she practically delivered, I feel like, half the population of the small town. And many people went to her asking questions. Um, I think questions are the most important things that you can do. Go mm -hmm. to the right sources of, of information. 
So we have heard from some listeners. Uh, some didn't have questions so much as they had praise. We got a tweet from L. Bryant who writes, as a former Pfizer employee, I'm so proud of the work being done in our region. Congrats on this amazing work. And I think there, this is a real point of pride for a lot of us mm-hmm. that this is happening here in Chesterfield. Um, we're also hearing from people who, Emily is saying, all I want is a kid's vaccine, yes. ASAP. I'm a parent, you're a parent. Yes. I know you have a child under 12. Yes, I do. Can you tell us anything about sure. your sense of where that all stands? Yeah, so we started our phase two, three trial for pediatrics um, back in June. And um, we're, we're hoping to have all of, at least the safety and immunogenicity data for the five to 11 year olds shortly, potentially by the end of the month. And, and what we'll do is we'll summarize all of that data and submit it to the FDA. Um, the FDA will scrutinize it just like they would with our, our normal phase two, three trial. And we're hoping that we will have an authorization for, for that age group soon. We are actually dosing down to six month olds in our phase two, three trial. And so what happens is, is that once we get uh, safety and uh, immunogenicity data on the older age group, then we will gradually um, work our way down in in terms of uh, dosing younger age groups. And so it will be a staged authorization. And we're we're hoping, hopefully in the October, November timeframe, that we'll have the ability to dose um, the 5 to 11-year-olds. Wow. Okay. So we don't have that long to wait, considering how many months it took us to get to this point. Yeah. the, The key thing is understanding the right dose. Um, and in those particular age groups, uh, it, you know, you don't have to dose as much. And uh, it, it's really key to understand the safety profile and also the, re- the immune response in those particular individuals. So if you have questions for Justin Sperry about any of this, you can call us at 314-382-8255. Again, that's 382-TALK. We got a question via Facebook from Sharon. She asked, why did Pfizer not fare as well as Moderna against the Delta variant in some recent studies? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, so there's, um, I I can comment a lot on Pfizer-specific studies. Um, We continue to be encouraged by a lot of the independent studies that are happening out there. So not necessarily within Pfizer control, but many academic universities, government institutions are um, studying the variants. We're trying to understand, you know, what the protection is in those particular areas. And and I think both the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine continue to provide really good protection against the virus, even the Delta variant that's circulating So you right feel now. good being out and about. Mm-hmm. I assume you got the Pfizer vaccine. Yes. <laughs> okay. And you feel comfortable being out and about with that level of protection right now? Um, yes, I, I, I feel comfortable. But I also am very proactive in understanding that, you know, a vaccine ultimately does not it's not a force field, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it's not something that puts an invincibility shield in, in front of you. Um, and so we still have to be cautious of, of the, the Delta variant and, and you know, the, the rate of disease that's happening in the, in the community. So we got a question from David. Uh, he tweets, how long would it take to make MU variant spike protein mRNA for enclosure into the liposomes? And right there, David has vastly exceeded my knowledge yes, of what I'm asking he's you. He's talking about the MU variant of, of concern. Yeah, yes. I know. This could be the next big thing to worry about. And he adds, speaking not here of the various steps required for approval, but mm-hmm. simply to encode and produce that particular vaccine preparation. Is that a big challenge there? Um, it, is a, it is a challenge, but um, we, we can do that. So from beginning to end, from the DNA 
to making the RNA to the final encapsulation, our goal is to respond to those kinds of things in, in 60 to 100 days. So um, literally, we, we want to get in front of, uh, again, the vaccine is designed to get ahead of the virus. And so if we want to make a Delta-specific train or a Mu-specific strain, it from beginning to end at the scale that we need to, it would take approximately 60 days. So who would decide? I mean, we've got Delta, we've got Mu. Yeah. Um, is that something Pfizer decides? Is that something the government decides? I think it's a combination of the entire scientific community. Um, and and it goes far beyond um, the community that's based in the United States. So mm. um, we have very large organizations that are constantly monitoring the, the spread, the mutation, and understanding the breakthroughs or possible breakthroughs that, that could be potentially happening. And so um, it's a decision that collectively comes together. It probably filters most likely into our vaccine research unit. This is where the, the discoveries of the, of the vaccine are made in combination with our partner BioNTech over in Germany. So. Okay. So this might not be the right question for you, but I have to ask it anyway, just in mm -hmm. case you can help provide some insight here. Yep. Um, Amy tweets, do you have thoughts about getting one dose of a Pfizer vaccine if you previously received J&J? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I, I think those studies are, are ongoing, and I think recommendations will be will be coming out for, for those types of scenarios. We, we have personally, Pfizer has not personally done uh, officially controlled studies with, with other programs at this point, so I can't give a definitive answer. Okay. I want to go to the phone lines here. Um, Ralph is calling from Missouri. Um, Ralph, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Yes. Thank you for taking my call. I'm 73 years old. And as a child, um, my parents and grandparents participated in the March of Dimes, and uh, we were we watched Jerry Lewis and his telephones try to point out to America that if we don't look at the health issues of our our uh, children and and try to unite ourselves um, as a nation to combat these problems. What has happened to America that we can't we can't unite like we did back when Jerry Lewis had his telethons and the March of Dimes sent people out getting dimes for polio and that? Ralph, thank you. I, I think that's a great question. It's something a lot of us are, are struggling with. Um, Justin, it, it seems like you maybe have a little more optimism or perspective on this than some of us who just want to bash our heads. Yeah. So, it, you know, thank you for the call. It's a it's an amazing question. Um, you know, I, I can say that science and technology is exponentially growing and our ability to understand and create. I mean, this vaccine is completely synthetically made. There, to dispel a lot of the rumors, we, we literally know all everything uh, uh, compositionally uh, about it. Um, and I, I think, you know, it kind of goes in line with the symposium that I'm speaking at tomorrow. You know, the, the premise of that symposium is opportunities in a time of disruption, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what you're speaking to is, is a disruption. You know, 2020 had a lot of things going on with the pandemic, a lot of things racially, environmentally, politically. There were a tremendous amount of things that were dividing our country and continue to divide our company. And um, I, I think as a community, um, as a people, as Americans, as, as members of our, of our world, we need to not look at differences as threats. Mm -hmm. We need to look at them as opportunities to learn from one another. And I, I, I hope that 
people come together more in, in the middle, uh, moving forward than continuing to, to separate and divide. So I'm glad you mentioned, um, again, this this uh, symposium you're going to be a part of. This is the Hancock Symposium at Westminster College, and your presentation is titled Past, Present, and Future Insights into the COVID-19 Vaccine. Um, and we want to encourage people to tune into this tomorrow. Uh, there's a link at stlonair.show if people want to see about watching this presentation as it happens. But I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a taste here, yeah. these insights. What's something that you've taken away from this 18-month process? that you've been a part of and everything that has happened to you in that time. Right. No, it's another, um, I've had to reflect on this a lot lately. Um, I think the big thing to take away is that this was not an overnight success. A lot of people think that this was an overnight success, and it's really, and I, and I brought up the discovery of RNA being 60 years old at this point. It's been a tremendous amount of science over, over the years, a tremendous amount of under, entire companies have been established on this technology for over a decade. Hmm. I, literally, over, over a decade. Clinical trials have been run in cancer and rare disease and infectious disease for many, many, many years. And I think looking forward, this, this entire technology has been validated. It's truly contributing to making change. And I think moving forward, you see the opportunities to do similar things in other disease areas, not only infectious disease, but thinking about something in cancer or rare disease, uh, again, that could help you know, our population further. So this mRNA, this mm-hmm. is here to stay. We now see the power it has to, to protect us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there, when, you, when you think about um, cancer, you know, many cancers um, are, are very good at hiding from the immune system, and they do that by putting things on their surface, just like coronavirus puts a spike protein on its surface. And so if you could train your immune system to identify those things on the, on the surface of a cancer cell, there's potential to clear and eradicate the cancer in somebody. I mean, this is, this is truly where our field will be transitioning and heading in, into the future. It's incredibly exciting. Well, it doesn't sound like things are going to slow down anytime soon for you. <laughs> so, Justin Sperry, thank you so much for joining us today. Mm-hmm. It was a pleasure. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.